Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. July 2nd, 2023, episode 224, Fortune Teller. Hello everyone, welcome into the corner, I'm Randy Oliver, and on this episode, uh, hold on a moment, I need to come clean because you probably know by now I'm not Randy Oliver. No, I'm good old Kevin Nicolini, well, sorry to disappoint you, but today, for this episode, I'm going to do my best Randy Oliver impression, except that I'm not bringing you scientific beekeeping, I'm bringing you speculation beekeeping. Yeah, I'm going somewhere with this and warming you up for what is to come and you don't even know it yet. My cheekiness about Randy is on the notion. Smart guy. Frenetic guy. Thinking guy. I've probably seen Randy present in person about a dozen times and hosted him in my house once when we had him in for a state meeting. One thing to know about Randy is he is serious about his bees. I think you know that I think all about bees all the time, but Randy, he's on another level. When he speaks in person, someone like me that's listening to him finds it impossible to decipher. He crams so many concepts into each passage that my brain locks up after the first three or four minutes and the rest is gibberish. I swear the only way to digest what Randy has to say for me at least, is to record him, play a segment, and pause the recording to contemplate what the underlying learning is. Because like when I read a book, I read for meaning, and I can't go forward in the book if I don't understand the passage that I just read. Well, I'm no Randy Oliver, but today I'm going to do a reasonable impression about what I'm going to share. This might be one that you listen to, think on it, and then listen again, because I'm going to elaborate on a number of concepts that I've been stewing on in my mind for years. Things that are all separate, yet all connected, if you take the time and have the experience to connect them. And what I'm going to do finally is coalesce all them and share today what's been years in the making. I want you to think of something in your life where you had an idea and you thought to yourself, That's going to come true someday. And along your journey of life, that notion pops up here, there, and everywhere. Well, maybe not everywhere, but enough for you to keep track of it and think one day this thing's going to become something. This episode is one of those things in my life. And before it gets started, I won't claim I'm omniscient or brilliant or super smart. I'm just a regular Joe with the power of observation coupled with a type A personality. That type of personality compels me to chase something down to some sort of conclusion because I've run on the engine of why. (laughs) I simply have to know why and the math has to add up. What I'm going to talk about, the dynamic of Varroa mites inside the colony, as they relate to the drones in the colony, is something that I've been stewing on for years, but keeping close to the vest until now. I've hinted at it here and there along the years and through the episodes, but as it is with the notion, one often is not alone. 
many of the greatest discoveries in life were being worked on simultaneously by two or more individuals, and I'm sure that many have been thinking along the same lines of what I'm going to talk about here today, as evidenced by the recent research of Dr. Lamas. More on that in the episode. I believe there's going to be a swing in management practices for mites in our future. It will be slow to progress, but in time, I think some smart people will pick up the gauntlet and we will advance our practices due to the dynamics and concepts I'm going to review. I kind of wonder, because I've been staring at this for so long, what took so long? I think maybe COVID had a role in delaying the notions. But nonetheless, I think the day has come, and that's all I'm going to give you. I do not want to go into any detail, give away the punchline. I want to take you on a journey and hope that you sit back, soak it in, and after you hear what is said, get your critical juices flowing about how you approach keeping bees and keeping posted on future changes that I think are right around the corner. To start out this episode, I'm going to go in an odd direction, and I hope you'll both indulge me and not mind how I am straying from the path of beekeeping with a short story of something from my professional life, because it sets the stage for how this whole illumination of this beekeeping concept is possible in the first place. So I'll tell you at the start that the title at my real job is a Digital Capability Manager. As corporate titles go, it is probably one of the fluffiest on the planet. <laughs> when I am introduced as a DCM, it usually results in someone smiling politely and asking, so what is it you do? Now bear in mind that we, like any other company in the universe, use technology in pursuit of our business. In time, I had to practice a response to explain it in English, and this is my elevator speech summation. I deliver corporate IT capabilities in pursuit of our business interactions with customers and stakeholders. Tell me what you need IT for, and I will design and operate a solution that serves the need. Now, as to what I really do... Over my two decades of delivering IT solutions, I've come to realize that there are models and patterns to the way things are designed. So ingrained are the architectural principles that I can rattle them off cold to you if you ask me to do so. From afar, every solution employs some combination of the same tactics using variations of models and patterns. And if you understand the landscape, it's not hard to figure out how to engineer a solution. Yeah, this still sounds a little bit nebulous, so let me give you an example. Say you come to my team and you ask for a mobile app. I know that from an authentication standpoint, I have a few choices when it comes to enabling mobile apps for authentication. The first choice is no authentication. Everybody can use it. And the most common choice in our corporate world is you authenticate using an ID and password. Nowadays, an enhanced model and pattern is ID and password coupled with an authentication code. In addition to those models and patterns, you have 
fingerprints, facial recognition, and a handful of others. So when it comes to building an IT solution, I could simply say to you, let me assemble the options off the shelf, and based on what suits you, I and our team will build it into the design. This holistic vision of the principles took years to develop, but it affords me the ability to presuppose some answers to just about any questions you might have about information technology. It also helps me when it comes time when I am called to solve problems when something has gone wrong. There was a time in our company when IT faced a problem. A multi-year, multi-millions of dollar solution was being orchestrated and the program launch was on the horizon in six months and six weeks. After working on this critical program for several years, the delivery teams encountered a catastrophic showstopper, one that was going to sabotage the ability for them to launch. Nothing is worse than when this happens at the end of a program and it really sets off the panic alarms all the way to the top echelon. At the time the event occurred, I was in the final stretch of leading my own $27 million implementation of a complete floor-to-ceiling delivery of a new commercial sales team solution for the company. Everything in my program was going great when I received a message out of the blue to report to the office of the company's chief information officer, or CIO. Now, mind you, when that occurred, you might note that I was not on a first-name basis with the CIO and could only imagine that it was because I did something wrong, and this was going to be the equivalent of going to the ultimate calling for a principal's office. It turns out they were actually calling me for the other situation. The strike team that they had formed with a number of very capable, experienced IT members worked for six months of the six-month, six-week window and couldn't wrestle the problem to the ground, and they were staring at six weeks to catastrophic failure. The program steering committee realized they were stuck, decided to consider alternatives, and asked around who they might find who thinks differently and somewhere my name floated to the surface and now you know what I was doing in the office of the CIO that day. When they explained all the information about the problem, which took about a half hour, I told them what the root cause was and outlined a plan that I could take if they led me to fix it. This six-month team leader had no confidence in the suggestion, but the steering committee gave me carte blanche to assemble a team. I remember walking out of the C-suite, the place where all the chief officers of our company sit at corporate headquarters, and having the senior vice president of our commercial organization tell me that I better have it right because I just took on the biggest risk he's ever seen someone take in their career. I went home convinced that I was one of the biggest idiots in the world after that comment and wondered if my career was over. Cutting to the chase of what happened, After working around the clock, by the end of the first week, I had collected all the evidence. By week two, I had a plausible design to solve the concern and could see that it was working in the labs we stood up to take on the problem. By week three, the team had tested and deployed a subset of the solution to a small population of test users, and it was working. And by week four, the problem no longer existed. The point of telling you all this is luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. 
My years of experience allowed me to connect the dots and train me where to look, and I could see clearly how the other team had it wrong. Hey, Kevin moment. Interestingly enough, if you own a modern computer these days, you probably benefited from the fix that was implemented to solve the problem. In the days when solid state drives or SSDs were first conceived, our company wanted to be the first ones to deploy the technology. They bought some of the first machines off the manufacturing lines equipped with SSDs from Lenovo, but discovered soon thereafter that the software we were using experienced corrupt data. The first team was focused on the new technology, the SSD drives, because they were convinced that the SSD new stuff had to be faulty. My hypothesis was they spent six months looking at the SSD drives, but it was actually the Windows operating system doing it. Our company has a premier partnership with Microsoft, and I was able to send my hypothesis to Microsoft that Windows was not operating correctly with the interface, and that's what was resulting in the data loss. I have to say, in reflection of this, one shining moment of this work was I actually got to geek out because I worked with one of the premier people in computer science, the engineer from Microsoft, that was known to have written much of the subsystem Microsoft kernel. Let's just say, if you don't understand what that signifies, it's analogous to working with, say, Thomas Edison in his prime. It was an amazing experience. The root cause was that Windows was not giving enough time for the SSD driver to write the data that was being held in memory before Windows shut everything off. It was like turning lights out of the bar and you didn't finish your drink. If a user closed the lid on their laptop and the machine went into hibernation, it resulted in the data loss. In the end, Microsoft rewrote the interface from Windows to SSD drives to prevent that problem from happening opening up that buffer so that the memory weight would finish before the machine powered off. And then they issued a patch to Windows subsystem so that this would not occur with our SSD drives and any SSD drive that you put into a Windows machine. End of Kevin moment. Now, after that, I was on a first name basis with the CIO and I did get called upon every once in a while for a consult. And he told me once, that I was one of the few rare individuals he encountered in his career that could look at a complex situation and see the solution for what it's worth. This is where I say, okay, enough of that. I need to tie that self-aggrandizing retelling to use for purposes for beekeeping. And here I'm going to tell you of a complex situation in this episode. It's a lot of interlinking parts and see if I can convince you that the answer is right in front of us. It's a solution we've all known, and it's actually in need of a rethink. I've been studying the problem of Varroamite dynamics since the beginning of becoming a beekeeper. Uh, yeah, look, to say that I am not unique in this, well, that's a gross overstatement, but I do feel like I have a unique take to share with you today about reimagining the way we perceive our management practices, something that I've been harboring for years, and now I'm going to commit to saying it out loud in this episode. My hope is that anyone who hears it might consider thinking differently about our relationship with Varroa mites. 
I want to start our explanation with a couple of questions for you. And the first question I want to ask is, when do you think is the critical time to treat for Varroa mites? Just spend a moment thinking about that. I think it's well known at this point that customarily you treat near the end of the forage season in spring and at the time that you pull honey from the hives, right? And there's logic to this. It's when we do our honey harvesting, the colony has grown all spring and the Varroa mites are at their largest population. And I think it's pretty well established practice by now that somewhere along the line you need to treat for your Varroa mites when the population boom occurs. Along with that, I'll take a moment to acknowledge that it is also somewhat common to know that some beekeepers practice treating in December in advance of the season and others touch up their hives in the windows of fall. For now, though, I want you to focus on that middle window. So when is it? I'm going to offer you a couple of choices. June, right now. June, this month. Done it already. July, right around the corner. August, or maybe September is your groove. So which do you choose? June, July, August, or September? And I want you to remember your choice and ask you to think about what influenced you to remember, to recall, and we'll see where that takes us. What were your inputs to your decision? We'll evaluate if your choice wavers after you hear all that has to be said. So now the second question I have is, think of your overall goals in beekeeping. Everybody got into it for some reason, I'm sure. I know, save the bees. We want to help the bees. It was for the honey. We did it for the honey. Maybe it was simple as somebody bought you a hive. Good, you just decided to go with it and we're happy you're still here with us. (laughs) Then again, it may have been because you wanted to pollinate some apple trees on your property. There are a long list of reasons why beekeepers take up beekeeping. It could be that you wanted to... Whatever, whatever the case may be. I'm not talking about the reason you got into beekeeping in the beginning. What I'm asking about now is centered on things that are a priority in your beekeeping today. And I'm going to give you a choice. One, it's about the honey. I want to have honey for whatever purpose. Maybe it's just to enjoy the honey or maybe it's to sell the honey and so on. There's not a beekeeper out there generally that doesn't appreciate the honey that comes with it. And the other one, if you had to choose, is as a beekeeper, I'm focused on survival. In my beekeeping today, My focus is to get the most colonies through the winter. Don't want to lose any colonies. And I want to be a good beekeeper, not have bees die on my watch. I'm only giving you two choices to keep this simple. So which one of those two do you choose? Which is more important? And that's not to say the other one doesn't matter, but you have to pick one. And we'll leave it at that. Okay, last question. When do you monitor for mites? Think of this both in quantity, how often, and timing. Is it once a year, twice a year, every month? And be honest, we're not judging you here. We're just asking the question and want you to think back on your practices. If it's once a year, then when do you do it? What month? 
And if you have a reason that you chose that month, think why it is that you do it in that particular time frame. Now, if you do it several times a year, then why? What are you looking for? What compels you to do it at those times? Now, for those of you that do it monthly, well, good on you. I have no questions as <laughs> you're on top of your game. Committed to the craft, no doubt. Still, given there's a weakness to monitoring, and you're going to learn what that is in this episode, even if you monitor every month, it's not all rosy. But in the guise of being informed, you are head and shoulders above everyone else. Okay, you have your answers, right, to these questions. Uh, wait, hold on. I see an elephant standing over there in the middle of the room. Yeah, some of you didn't get a chance to answer because, well, you don't monitor. And the truth is, I know it. You know it. And I think that it's something we don't talk about out loud, you know, when we're at beekeeping meetings. It's not said in a condemning way for me, because more in a pragmatically, a lot of people just don't monitor mites. That's the answer. And while they know the purported benefits of it, they, for whatever reason, simply have not taken up the practice with any regularity or at all. Now, I have my hand raised in the air about that elephant. I'm here now. I'm going to tell you I'm terrible about it. With sometimes 12 to 20 to even 30 hives, I barely have enough time to stay ahead of my maintenance tasks. Given my overloaded lifestyle, monitoring is simply pushed lower and lower on the priority list, and I never get to it, so I will not judge. I'm currently supporting the treatment-free phase, testing bees that we reared, and should be monitoring to gauge how they're holding up. And if you listened to the last episode, you heard me say that I committed on the 4th of July break that I'm going to monitor my hives to some extent. So monitoring the unwritten reality is that quite a few of you beaks out there are simply just not doing it. That being said, then, an added bonus question for you is not about when you monitor, because you don't, but something else. If it's true that these beekeepers are not monitoring, then how are they figuring out how to apply treatments? So the question is, if you're not monitoring, when? Do you treat? And what did you use to inform that choice? Now, if this were a live session, I bet this would yield some interesting responses, but alas, we're not going to know, so you'll have to consider that question on its own merit and think about what people would say when they ask that question in the wild. I have asked this question to beekeepers on the side, and many of them follow a regime that they picked up somewhere in a training course. Now think about it. We've all seen them. Some noted beekeeper is standing in front of the room and brings up that slide that says, I use an oxalic acid treatment in November, December to knock the mites down before the season starts. I might even use an apivar strip shoved in the winter cluster for a touch-up. In summer, when honey is on, I use a Formic Pro application, making sure the window I choose is not so hot as to gas the bees. I might touch up the colony after fall harvest and before it gets too cold if 
a mite bomb arrives with APOGARD treatment, and since the person is qualified to stand in front of the room, and they are, they're probably a really good beekeeper, they tell you that they monitor and treat, and they monitor to see if things worth post-treatment, whether they worked or not. This is the typical presentation I've seen it. Yeah, I've been in those sessions. In fact, I think you could tell by the way I narrated it. I've recited it by heart. And what I see is beekeepers copying down the schedule on the slide for future consideration. Fast forward to the beekeeping season, and since we just established that a lot of beekeepers do not monitor, even though the talking head said they should, they pick the middle treatment on or about honey harvesting time and rationalize that since mites were at peak population, that was slide two prior to the treatment regime calendar slide, they are doing good, what seems to be the right thing, and if they kill the mites at that time period, then things don't go off for the rest of the summer while doing hive inspections. It's a job well done. I'm presupposing how people rationalize this. I've just answered the question that I think if we ask this out loud in the forum, this is what people would tell you. Yeah, wow. Where did I just go? <laughs> well, sorry. But that was necessary because I'm here to tell you that there's a lot to unpack if we take the time to scrutinize this whole space where it's gone. And when you think back of what it looks like looking through the forest for the trees, you start to recognize all this and really understand how it's being done. So in this show, we'll explore and maybe even challenge some of the norms of this whole mite population dynamic and the treatment regimes. And maybe, just maybe, we'll reconsider the answers to the questions you just provided after you hear what is going to be discussed. And so, okay, let's take a bit of a journey. And I'm going to do this in a couple parts. And the first part is going to focus on the role of mite populations and understanding how varroa mites intertwine with honeybee colonies. So we all know that honeybee colonies come out of winter and they start to build colony population. And when the forage breaks, it means that they have a reasonable workforce to do all the jobs in the colony, along with the ability to go out and forage and bring in resources. A colony that's in that state, a colony that builds population in a normal sense, is on a quest to do what comes naturally. It wants to swarm. And so, in preparation for swarming, what do they raise? They raise drones. So there's a period of time during this nectar flow and colony growth and population increase that drones are present in the colony. Things go along swimmingly well, and what we want to recognize here is that what is also going on with the colony population, new worker bees are being reared every single day. Drones emerge and they maintain in the population. And there's a combination of developing brood, progressing in all stages, and a percentage of that is maintained as capped brood. This is what's going on every day. Run-of-the-mill, normal, what you would expect kind of stuff. If we turn to examine what's going on with varroa mites, 
they're doing their thing too, lockstep with the bees. They are finding their way into brood that's just about to be capped. They're building new population. They're growing as fast as the bees. In fact, and this is a really important concept to grasp, they're outpopulating the bees. What I mean by that is if you look at the research, it's been concluded that Varroa mites are building on average 1.3 Varroa for every worker bee that emerges. And for drones, the ratio is 2.7. I have that in my master beekeeper notes, and sorry, I, I in just glancing at them the other day, I forgot to look at where that came from. And incidentally, as I look around, I see that number varies by different reports, but that's the, the ratios that I've always kind of locked in as to what it means. And if those numbers seem confusing, let me explain what that is. As varroa mites grow in a cell, the original mite that went in tries to mate with the offspring, and sometimes she makes one, sometimes she makes two, and in the case of drones, sometimes she makes three. If you average out how many mites come out of the cells over a period of time, it's 1.7 for workers and or 1.3 for workers and 2.7. That's how those came in. But let's just simplify that, right? 1.3 plus 2.7, add them together, it's easy math, it comes to be 4. And doing the math, that means that we get 2 mites for every bee, because it was 4 mites for the 2 bees that emerged, 1 worker and 1 drone. I recognize that some of you just had a stroke. <laughs> You're trying to calculate that for every drone that emerges, there's two workers that come out, and well, the summation is patently wrong. Yeah, okay, but hear me out. I'm just trying to keep this simple, and I'm not about to try and, you know, wrangle quadratic equations to be factually right. Conceptually, you get it, that the mites are outproducing the bees by some ratio. Let's just call it two to one to make it easy to talk about. Okay? So, I want to point out that it's well-established fact that varroa mites outpopulate honeybees during the population increase part of the season, and it has some material impact to colony survival. What's important to note is this is happening from the beginning of the season all the way through to summer. So, we all get the gist, right, that eventually varroa mite populations become pretty impactful. So, Keep that in the back of your mind, and I will say, at our recent New Jersey State meeting, we talked about the research from Dr. Zachary Lamas from the USDA ARS B-Lab in Beltsville, Maryland. And his tagline on this very topic is, Varroa is hiding in plain sight. If you're not familiar with the research, the premise is, that this is a well-known construct that traces all the way back to the early studies of Varroa mites, when they came across from Asia and jumped to our European honeybees, mites prefer to reproduce with drones. Evolution-wise, biologically in a parasitic host relationship, it makes sense because mites make more population in a drone. We just talked about that ratio. And their goal of life, of course, is to reproduce. And therefore, it's inferred that mites have their preference. Scientists 
researchers, whichever you want to refer to them, as tell us that mites opt for drones in development over workers in development. But we're missing something, though. This is what I'm thinking. When we stand back and look at the overall complexity of this, we're not thinking right in a couple of areas. So to go down that path, I want to talk about the boys in the colony. Our drones are generally lamented by beekeepers as deadbeats. They got one job, haha. They go out to the singles bar in the sky and they mate with the queens. Nothing but promiscuous boys with one mission in life. When they are not on their ultimate quest, they wander around in the hive, they eat all the food, and from an outside perspective, they just serve no useful purpose. I'm here today to think that we could change that impression because if you think about this, I would suggest that unbeknownst to us, they're actually taking one for the team. In a moment, you'll understand what I mean by that. Now on the flip side, worker bees are emerging every day. They're going out and working to forage and bring back the resources to sustain the colony working sun up to sundown while also working around the clock inside the hive. It's a 24-7 operation. They get a pat on the back for the amazing job that they do in support of working in harmony to keep the colony going. So much so that the worker's lifespan is relatively short at the height of the forage season due to the tireless workload and that equates to a high turnover of the population which is a point we'll come back to consider later. In contrast, drones, what are they doing in there? They bop out of the hive sometimes in the morning, they fly out to the drone congregation area for a possible tryst, they come back if they didn't get lucky and they hang around the hive for a while, maybe going back out for a few flights a day. But the rest of the time, they're meandering around, begging for food, and generally not serving any other purposes. So now, we need to consider Dr. Lamas's tagline, hiding in plain sight. And I understand the ramifications of that. The truth is, they're taking one for the team, and we're going to make a case for that. And let's revisit that Varroa mites are breeding in the cells. If you've ever pulled a frame during an inspection and there was drone comb on top of it, you probably noticed some broken comb splayed open and upon looking down, you observe the pearly white drones in development. When you look closely, you probably saw the brick red Varroa mites zipping around on the larva. And it serves to demonstrate that, yep, Varroa mites are there. We get to see them all the time if you've witnessed this phenomenon. You know, it's not an uncommon practice for beekeepers to purposely check those errant comb deposits of drone comb because it informally tells you whether or not you have mite loads within the drones of the colony, kind of like an unstructured exploratory mite load indicator. One analogy is looking at mites dropped on a bottom board. It's, It's a different take on that. I have seen this phenomena, break the comb open, see a varroa mite scuttling around, so much that I operate that mites are in the drone brood, and Dr. Lamas works to help bolster that idea. With this as an assumption, think this through. When drones emerge, where do the mites that have been in development go? They come out, and it could be assumed that they 
might be hanging out and feeding on the bee that they started with. Net-net, they're riding around on the drones, and in time, they will jump off and go back into another cell somewhere to start all over again. Now consider this. What if, during the times of drones in the colony, you establish some means to sample how many varroa mites are actually riding around on the drone population? You would be surprised to learn that they're there. This is what Dr. Lamas's work proved out and what he means by their hiding in plain sight. So you know what this means? We need to think this through. That the drones are serving an intangible benefit, and I like to express it this way. It turns out the drones are taking one for the team. How might you ask? Well, if we look at this holistically, the drone larvae are being impacted. The adults are being wounded. And it's plausible to conclude that as a net effect, the drones may be carrying the brunt of mite virus loads with the colony. Now, isn't that an interesting perspective? I want you to put a pin in this. We're going to come back to it later in the analysis and turn to examine population impacts on the life cycle. So we've been talking about the population growth phase of the colony. Now I want to jump ahead where we near the end of the forage season, the population growth phase of the colony reaches peak population and we start on the population decline time of the year. One thing that happens along this timeline is the colony has less need for drones and the queen slows down and eventually stops rearing drones. Bum, bum, bum. What's it going to mean for us in the long run? I would speculate that as a result of this changeover, the drone population dwindles in the colony, and that leads us to a dynamic of this timeline that I want to go to next. The perfect storm phase. Now, where we are is it's the end of the nectar flow and the time when you are mustering to take your honey harvest. Remember my illustrative somewhat less than scientific math? that for every bee emerging, two mites have been created. The population explosion has run its course, and it's reached its critical mass, and now I come back to the pin we put in the earlier topic. There's a dynamic going on behind the scenes that I will call switchover. Given the drones are being produced in lower numbers and being eliminated from the hive through attrition, and keeping in mind that the mites have had drones to ride around on, what is the only logical thing that can happen? The mites have only one place to go, and I'm sure you have it by now. They can only go to the worker community. Now we know through monitoring that a certain percentage have been going to the worker brood during the population growth the whole time, but without the presence of drones in meaningful numbers, they're now going 100% to the workers and the worker brood. The perfect storm aspect of this is that when the mites are at their highest population, they transition to worker bees. And of course, that includes the all-important workers who are serving in the role as nurse bees. While switchover occurs at a critical time, it's not something you can measure on a calendar. The reason for this is every colony is unique. 
and it would take a long time to visit the varying factors that influence population dynamics. Things like colony size and equipment they're hosted in and if treatments were done pre-season and so on. But the takeaway here is you have to evaluate this on a hive-by-hive basis. I have seen in my hives that one hive will be done with the presence of drones in the population while the other one next to it still has a large contingent. Following our line of thinking, drone presence and brood production can have a profound impact on one of the management practices, mite monitoring. Let's go ahead and explore that. Consider that you're in and around this time of the perfect storm and perhaps the drone population is still in the hive. At that point in time, you're doing your monitoring because, you know, we're nearing peak population and might should be at an all-time high for the season. Given what we're saying, it's highly plausible that you are getting a false positive. You're monitoring worker bees because Well, that's where an alcohol wash is conducted. And when you monitor the worker bees, you may or may not be getting false readings because the thresholds are turning out low. But actually, the mite population is massive and you can't tell because they're on the drones and or they're in the frames of capped brood. And this is key. It means that these dynamics could be masking your count and it has the potential to give you that false positive. You're meandering through the season, sampling and getting low thresholds, and you're thinking, they're low, and I'm good to go. When all of a sudden, the perfect storm blows in, and monitoring suddenly uncovers what was missing, and all of the capped brood emerges, and all the mites in the cells come out and get onto the bees, and at the same time, the drones take their hike, and their mites transfer over to the worker population, and it's that critical time because it impacts your nurse bees. They're the ones that will be feeding and passing on any of the nasties that they're picking up to the summer and fall developing brood. And again, this is a big one. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to this, I promise. As we progress on building a bunch of concepts that we will bring back together after we explore and summarize the different dynamics in play, but I have one more that I want to throw in the pile. Because you may or may not have been thinking about this somewhere along the line, and I don't want your brain to lock up. I want to talk about it and get it out in the open. So let's go down a short sidebar. <laughs> what of the practice of drone brood culling? Does it possibly bolster a notion that we could have had a meaningful tool to prevent this switchover dynamic? And like those who don't monitor and never admit it, how many of us are actually doing drone brood culling? There's not a lot of folks doing it, but now you're thinking, hmm, This is an interesting thing. I might have to reconsider that. The answer might be, sure, that's a really good idea because one could zap all the mite population right from the get-go and they'll never emerge with the drones and therefore they'll never transfer. Okay, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Not a bad take on this, but hold on a moment. Let's think about this a little differently. Now, I wonder... And this is just me thinking out loud that if you did that, eliminate the drones through culling. What if that notion that the drones are taking one for the team? With less drone population 
any varroa mites that are coming out of worker cells. And they are, of course, doing this during the entire development season. They'll have drones to go to. But because the drones have been eliminated through a drone culling process, we are actually hurting ourselves because there's nobody there to take one for the team. Maybe we would be better off to let the drone population run its course and then figure out at the time drones have finished their job, how to get rid of the adult population before the switchover. What if when we get to the window of drone brood production slowing down and we're observing the drone population in decline we find that this is the right time to act. Playing pretend. Imagine if you would. What if we could trap all the drones wandering around, benefiting from the premise that they've taken one for the team and they can make one last benefit from them by culling the live adults, not the brood, and any vestige of the brood in production, bang, all in one shot, and thwarting the switchover. See, in a bit of rationalization, it's not a cruel practice, so to speak, because by nature, the colony is about to eliminate the drones naturally over the coming months. We're just advancing the timeline and to our benefit. This begs the question, of course, how, pray tell, do you pick a drone out of the population? Well, an interesting thing occurred with me in that famous video that I don't particularly love, but it's out there, when I euthanized the hive, the one on YouTube. This is a Kevin moment. One of the things I did as a sidebar during the time of developing the strategy to deal with the problem of euthanizing the hive was finding a way to prevent the drones of that particular nasty, ridiculously, terribly aggressive colony from going out into the world. In order to keep the drones from leaving the hive before I euthanized it, I put a queen excluder below and above the brood boxes. And the reason this works, and an interesting thing to note, is that for the most part, drones can't pass through a queen excluder. They get trapped and they can't get through the gaps. Along the course of mitigating that problem, I had to at one point open the colony and observe there were 10 billion drones looking at me and they were like, why can't I get out? What did you do? So taking that as a concept, considering this discovery, we could use this example in some manner, maybe to find a way to sequester adult drones within the population for our purposes of eliminating the population on demand. And isn't this interesting? Maybe we could even parlay this notion into our mite monitoring, augmenting our mite monitoring. The reason is we can learn how to sequester drones for the purpose of sampling them instead of the workers when drones are present in the population. Now, I'm not saying I have the answer to this. This is just me processing what the art of the possible is and how to use our power of observation to be fortune tellers as to how the future might look. End of the sidebar, Kevin moment. Okay, I feel better. Let's return to where we left off. We were at the perfect storm part of the season. We reached the window where all the mites were switching over from the drones, and the colony population is in jeopardy because there are mites in abundance, and now the onslaught is impacting our worker bees. 
And as we established, each colony is different. So this can happen sometime in June or July, or even as late as August, depending on your situation. Now think about this now, coming back to one of the opening questions. Which would you rather have as an outcome? Honey harvesting or hive survival? Remember that question? From a direct head-to-head -head comparison that seems like a silly notion, a dead hive is far more detrimental than not getting some honey, but a funny thing happened along the way. I would suggest that some beekeepers have come to believe that, while I certainly do not want my bees to die, many have become conditioned with it to be okay. It's a true reality which some hives die even if we put good measures in place. As an aside, it's kind of a recognition that what we do, even if we follow the best instructions to the letter, monitoring and treatments and brood breaks, oh my, it results in dead hives. You could do everything perfect, and as you're learning, you're still in trouble. I think this is why in beekeeping talks, researchers lament that when it comes to getting a handle on all of this, everyone knows it could be better. I've heard that so many times from national speakers up on the stage. Now, look, I'm not saying that beekeepers embrace this nation, but we all know that losing hives has become somewhat the nature of the business. And in reality, we rationalize these losses we can't avoid with the notion that as long as something makes it through, we have ways to compensate for our losses. It goes a little something like this. For each and every hive I lose, I'm going to be distraught. Even to this day, I personally get distraught, but pragmatically, we have all been conditioned over time to recognize this is just how it is, and it's not the end of the world. Even good beekeepers lose bees, so why sweat the losses? They're just built into the system. And, and this is key, I'm going to compensate by focusing on making honey. I can't sweat the other thing. I'm going to make some honey. And I'm going to do that with the bees that make it through and let losses be losses. Wow, isn't that an interesting twist on the psychology? And I don't think I'm that far off with this. But realistically, though, in a commercial economic threshold sense, this sure is an odd thing to accept because the collateral impact, as we all know, of hive loss, it, it has really bad repercussions for your operation, especially if you're a commercial entity. We all know that it means for every colony lost, you probably have to split a good one in your future so that you can replace the colony that's perished. And the colony that you molest to make that replacement, it's not possible, usually, that it's going to make much honey that year. If it had been left alone, it would have been one of your better producers. You know, as for me, I do not want to get on board with accepting hive losses. Never have liked that idea. I would contend that saving hives equals a lot of honey. <laughs> Doesn't that make sense? You know, I have to admit to you that I've landed on the answer to that a long time ago. In part of trying to figure out what I was going to teach to beekeepers, uh, I landed on this concept that I want to share with you. And the last part 
that I'm going to get into is suggestions that I want to talk about where we have some stuff wrong. At least that's the my way of thinking. And maybe you'll come there with me as I try to tell you the way that I perceive hive survival is more important than honey harvesting. So we've bounced back and forth. We've talked about hive survival being important, but we've also talked about mite treatment programs that have dependencies on harvesting season. And let's look at our mite monitoring program norms. I would speculate that many everyday normal beekeepers work out some aspects of their treatment programs, their regimes, and when they do things, of course, based on the honey flow. And there's a couple of good reasons for that. First one being they don't want to take honey supers off the hive to get down to issue treatments. But if it's honey season and you're pulling them anyway, then it exposes the brood box and you're good to go. And then the second thing is, depending on what the treatment is, it may have implications on both the weather and whether honey is present. So if honey's not present, that solves that problem. And it's somewhat natural to couple those two things together. And so industry as a whole has decided that honey harvesting, for various reasons, is lockstep with mite treatments. And a lot of beekeepers have been conditioned to think in that perspective. And I want to challenge that because we said that hive survival is more important than honey harvesting. It's hive survival. So how do you get hives to survive putting treatments aside? You have to have clean bees going into winter. But dang it, we have the perfect storm on the horizon. So if we find a way to bounce the mite population prior to their ability of doing harm to our winter bees, then we're going to solve the problem. And when thinking about winter bees, I don't know if this is the right way or wrong way, but I have looked at this based on experience of being caught off guard a time or two. So now I'm conservative. And I consider that winter in mid-Atlantic comes November 1st. And honestly, because I do a lot of training and it's easy to do this, I translate November 1st into Halloween, October 31st or the day before. Because it's easy for me when I'm training people about this to say, Halloween, and everybody can envision what it's like to get to that time of year. Now look, winter sometimes comes as late as December, or it even comes in late November. But the key here, conservative, is it can come November 1st, and we have to plan for it in case it comes November 1st, because if winter arrives November 1st, you can't manage the bees after that. Everything's got to be buttoned up. If November 1st comes and there's still a window of opportunity, then nothing, no harm, no game. You just keep going until cold sets in. Okay. It takes 21 days to make a worker. And we get to the point where we are focused on colony survival. We have all workers in the mix. There aren't drones anymore come summertime. You know what I mean? They're sometimes in there and they may even overwinter with the colony, but the plethora of drones, they're not there. It's the workers who carry us into overwintering. 
and the drones are inconsequential. So thinking of this with the end goal in mind and working it backwards, it takes 21 days to make a worker. And I would say that after the summer solstice, which is sometime in June, that's when bees begin to start to conjure, how can I set up the colony for winter? And if I work four cycles of bees back from Halloween, 21 days, 21 days, 21 days, 21 days, that takes me to August 8th. So we're going to go with that. Somewhere in and about August 8th is the time frame that I speculate that colonies start the notion to build winter bees. And the developing bees experience a change to a winter phenotype. And in this case, phenotype equates to a bee's body endures changes in a few ways that it can adapt for overwinter. Summer bees and winter bees are different. Maybe it's a change in makeup where they store additional fats, fats that they leverage to survive long periods of dormancy. And they can develop, my understanding, differently suited flight muscles, the shoulder muscles, if you want to call it that, so that we can grasp where I'm talking about, that are employed to shiver, which generates heat, and that's how the colony stays warm in the winter months. There's an overwintering talk that I give to bee clubs about how this works, and all of this is in there. And so we can know, and it's widely understood, that overwinter bees, they switch over at some point, and I would speculate that it has to do with forage availability, change in temperature, and well, there's likely a bunch of different triggers that can precede the change. But coming back to center, we are looking at the queen laying eggs and developing larvae on August 8th. That will be the bees that won't live weeks, like a summer bee who's been foraging from sunup to sundown, but months, November, December, January, February, maybe even to the end of March and beyond. And so those bees have to be healthy, not laden with viruses, not wounded by varroa mites. And we need to recognize that after August 8th, a larger subset of the population needs to fall into the category of clean if our bees are to survive. So when I think about that, we have a date, a target. Winter bees start August 8th. But in practice, what does that mean to us as beekeepers? It actually means something a little bit different. It means that in order for you to start with August 8th clean bees, you have to clean up the varroa mite population in advance to August 8th. If I look at 42 days for an Apivar treatment, I'll pick that as a potential treatment out of the air because many of you know offhand that the treatment window for Apivar is 42 to 56 days based on the labeling. If I take August 8th and I go back 42 days, guess what? I'm right near the summer solstice. If I go 56 days, I'm in front of it. If I go 42 days, I'm after it. So that means that I need to monitor and treat so that I can have clean bees for August 8th in June. It's June. 
If I wait till July, I have some risk. If I wait till August, and especially if I wait till September, I have missed the bus. I have missed the opportunity. I am so behind functionally to my objective for cycles of clean winter bees. The longer I wait, and the more compromised you are in that four-window cycle, the more risk you take on for your bees not overwintering. Now, mind you, given all that we've just discussed, there's one delta in this, and it's the drones. Maybe we get to summer solstice, which is... I, if I remember right, it's either June 20th or 21st, depending on what year it is. And there's still a plethora of drones in the colony. Then maybe your switchover is still to come. And you may have to take whatever measures to get varroa mites down a little bit later in the cycle. This is where I say to you, you have to do work as a beekeeper. This is what inspections are about. And we have been saying every colony is like a child and therefore warrants a little bit difference in care. But in a general sense, summer solstice is the marker for when you need to be executing your evaluations and committing to eliminating mite impacts in the anticipation of August 8th. And as an aside, you will also have to have to proactively monitor for the remainder of the season to protect your clean bees once you achieve them by August 8th. But given what we just discussed, let's come back to one of the opening items from the beginning of the episode that we put a pin in. It was, when is the best time to treat and do you time it with honey harvesting? One of the initial challenges that I think we're going to have to deal with this is this conflict with honey harvesting. But this reimagined way of thinking... When beekeepers look at their honey boxes in June, they're going to see that the bees haven't capped them yet. And they're going to say to us, I'm not sure what you want me to do with this. I know. I know. And so, yes, this is going to be a complicated thing. And I'm not sure how to answer that other than if you want your bees to survive and you're thinking about the greater good, you're going to have to interrupt what the colony has going on, and you're going to have to knock the mites down during the cusp of harvesting season. It's going to force your hands, and I mean that you are likely going to have to use something like Formic Pro or a product where you have honey on the hive. If we're to prioritize hive survival, then that's what's on the table. It needs to be said out loud that there are other potential inputs to the timing. As I look through the model, it's not so neat and clean and tidy. Taking into account one of the things that people do these days is they treat somewhere in December or the period coming out of winter before the bees brood up to knock down the mites. How does that play into this? It might keep the population at a lower rate of ascendancy the varroa mite population through the entire season, which is its goal in the first place. And as such, you might buy some time and delay the perfect storm until a little bit later, giving you a different perspective on things. Now, if we follow that out a little bit, you can get to late June 
or early July and not get those thresholds where the switchover occurs and is decimating your colony, at least from a mite population boom. You still have the drone factor and the cap brood factor and all that other stuff that we talked about earlier, but maybe you can issue your treatments or do something different as you don't have as much jeopardy of getting to August 8th with clean bees. I, I don't know. I am, I'm still, as you can tell, working through the patterns and models of all this. And now that we know all of this and have evaluated it, considered it, how we might change or adapt to accommodate in different ways of thinking, we've got some work to do. In time, we may have other considerations to factor in our future management practices. As I said earlier, maybe there'll be some way to call the drones and change the overwhelming mic numbers that way. Could that alter the method in which we could consider a change to August 8th? Of course, we're not going to know the answer to that yet here today. And it might take a long time for things to change, to coalesce. But with this information coming out and being absorbed by beekeepers, it's something to keep an eye on and proactively consider in our plans. At minimum, we should look at all these dynamics and rethink or understand how varroa mites are impacting our colonies in the here and now. And while all this speculation about what it's going to be like in the future is healthy, we can't lose focus on what we're doing this season and next season for our planning. It's clear that the impact of loitering in our programs to late July and August for mite management, and as stated earlier, certainly not September, if there is any risk, it's that we're not proactively protecting that window from August 8th to Halloween and beyond, as the weather dictates if winter comes a little later. And I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but I feel like this concept is simply not getting through. And how do I know that? I was in a beekeeper meeting not too long ago where that question was asked. There was a poll. Is it June, July, August, or September? And it ended up <laughs> in the room being like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season. People were arguing about that, and some were vehemently suggesting that September made sense because it splits the difference between the seasons. Logically, the September argument was, you could treat once a year, you get past the honey season, and you clean up your mites in anticipation of winter. Mm, no, sorry, I can't subscribe to that. As I've been suggesting past August 8th, and you've missed it, and if anything, I'm hoping that I have dispelled the myth that you want clean winter bees and high survivability. If that's your goal, then you will not wait till August or September to correct the situation. And as I try to coach our mentees that it's just too late because of the perfect storm dynamic, and you have to recognize the potential for harm when mite populations overwhelm bee populations, and then you're going to plan for that and make sure that you have the ability to prevent mites from overrunning your colony. And of course, the best resource for you is the Bee Informed Partnership and the Honey Bee Health Coalition who are tracking these things and teaching you how to 
do Varroa management tools and videos, choose the right treatments and other things that are in play. Use them to your advantage to design whatever your program may require. Uh, Kevin, moment. I'd love to give you a formula. Would love nothing better. But really, you have to consider whatever I might suggest is going to crash and burn in the real world. What you have going on, the uniqueness of the state of your colony, as well as your climate, your forage, your equipment, and the number of hives you're running, make it something that, I'm sorry, you have to do it directly. There are beekeepers who run conventional two deep setups with mediums over top, and then you have all the all medium hive people and the top bar hive people and the eight frame hives and single deep practice. And well, you could see that it would take a university to consider all those dynamics and come up with a treatment regime plan based upon factors for your apiary. And so I'm sorry to say that you kind of have to figure it out on your own, but at least you have these critical concepts to help guide you in your plan. It's easy to say that drones Harbor Varroa and the switchover that you learned about, mite population dynamics that we talked about, the clean bee concept for overwintering. Keep these principles in mind as you make your plan and bounce them against what you're doing to measure whether it has some sort of Achilles heel somewhere. So give it some thought. Start early. Focus on clean winter bees and survivorability, can't say that word, over honey production. And don't let the mite population switch over catch you by surprise. Understanding how to protect the worker population from the mite impacts is really the essence of keeping bees these days. And one last thing to say before I close, this is a moment, a moment to be recognized. I'm happy to see that my thought processes over the years, the ones that I've mentioned briefly or in the case of episode 203 back in 2021 outright, I now have the data to back up the observation that we've been overlooking the drones. This episode is going to be one small spot of consideration among a buzz of reporting on this. And in time, the industry will absorb the notion that the drones and the mites and mites on plain sight, thank you, Dr. Lamas, it's going to change things. Changes will come. Pay attention, listen to how this is changing our approaches in the future, and in time, maybe the whole sequester of the drones to monitor or call art of the possible thing that I raise will be solved and new practices will emerge. I can't imagine that we beekeepers will not witness some adjustment in our practices now that this speculation has been found to be true. It has to be valid to the concept and creative minds that they will transform this into new practices for us to benefit from. So, you know, keep your ear to the ground, pay attention. If I had to guess, we will have two monitoring principles in our future. At some point, we'll be monitoring mites on drones, and then continue to monitor mites on workers once the drones are no longer in the colony. So I say, let's see where this goes. And as for what to do now, well, maybe for the rest of the year, you look for tweaks as to where you could take the win. 
And since you're probably already committed to your plans for 2023, you can then look back at this critically after the season is over and question how you're going to think differently in 2024. So there you have it. And I have that off my chest and I have to tell you, I'm worn out. Well, that took a lot of doing and you might have to listen to this episode twice or three times to get all that stuff I dumped on you, but it's now out of my brain and in a recording and later on I'll listen to it again and be happy that I finally uh, said it out loud. And I think it's time to say, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening to me on this and be well, everybody. <laughs>